I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times on Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending November 19th. 50 years ago, on November 15, 1971, Intel formally introduced a logic chip called the 4004. This week, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first microprocessor, easily among the most important advances in electronics history. The 4004 was the first commercial microprocessor, but few understood the significance at the time. That includes people at Intel itself. The 4004 led to additional microprocessor designs, clearing a pathway for Intel to become an industrial giant. Microprocessor technology eventually became a critical enabler of innovation across the electronics industry, a trend that just keeps getting stronger even after 50 years. This week, look back at one of the most momentous developments in electronics history. First, a rundown of some more recent news in EE Times this week. NVIDIA proposed buying ARM more than a year ago. It would be an enormous deal, now worth about $54 billion based on price gains of NVIDIA's stock. If allowed to go through, the merger would definitely alter the business landscape in the electronics industry. The question is, if those changes would be detrimental to the market. Three weeks ago, the European Commission opened an antitrust probe. This week, the United Kingdom expanded its investigation, looking into antitrust and national security issues. Details are on our website. Interesting things happen in labs all the time, and true, not all of it pans out. And yet, so often we hear of intriguing possibilities. Perovskites are a class of semiconductors which tend to be photoreactive, making them useful in solar cells, for example. Researchers in South Korea have been working with strontium titanate, which turns out to have electrical properties that can be deliberately tuned, which could make strontium titanate an interesting candidate for optoelectronic applications. Tesla Motors is one of the most valuable companies in the world in terms of market capitalization. It's not clear it merits being far more valuable than every other car company in the world, however. This week, our remarkably accurate auto industry analyst, Colin Barnden, suggests keeping an eye on Ford. Yes, Ford, which is shaping up to be one of the more formidable competitors against Tesla. Read our story to find out why. If you are already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left. You'll see links to all of these stories and more. If you're not already on the site, you can go straight to eetimes.com for all of our coverage. You'll also find links to articles from our sister publications about power electronics, embedded ICs, analog circuitry, new product news, distribution news, and more. This week in electronics history, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the microprocessor. It is hard to understate the importance of the microprocessor. One version or another has enabled innovation in so many other products, starting with calculators and moving on to desktop computers, laptops, digital music players, smartphones, supercomputers, giant data centers, with applications ranging from aerospace to biomedical to smart cities. The list goes on and on. Now, with the accumulation of 50 years of microprocessor history, the story of the first one understandably gets shaved down to the essential details. The first one was the 4004. It was made at Intel. 
The primary designer was Federico Fagin. The 4004 was introduced in 1971. It paved the way for Intel to become dominant in microprocessors, a dominance that persists to this day. Well, that's the essential story, but it skips some interesting details, however. First, the 4004 wasn't Intel's idea. Building it required a wild leap of engineering imagination. Intel was barely interested in microprocessors, and it took another 10 years before the company began to fully exploit the product line. Time has obscured what an extraordinary achievement it was. Intel was established in 1968. Its founders and many of its first employees had worked at Fairchild Semiconductor. Now, their idea was to develop standard chips that the company could crank out in high volume without having to do a lot of costly redesigning. On the logic side of the business, almost everything at the time required a custom design. Intel's goal was to concentrate on integrated memory chips. By 1970, Intel had embarked on creating the 1103. The 1103 would become the first commercially available dynamic random access memory, or DRAM. Now, that's the product that Intel co-founder Andy Grove was concentrating on. The previous product, the 1101, was a static RAM that the market found too slow and too power-hungry. Intel's future was staked on the 1103. Now, Intel got the 1103 to market in late 1970, and it was an immediate success. It quickly began to replace core memory, which is what it was designed to do. By the late 1970s, Intel had built itself into the largest memory supplier in the world, but that would be later in the decade. In early 1970, Intel still didn't have a hit product yet, and so it was still in a financial position where it would have to take the best business it could get. Founders Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore accepted a contract from Japanese manufacturer Nippon Calculating Machine, which was looking for a company to design and build a set of 12 or more custom chips for a calculator called the Busycom 141PF. Nippon Calculating Machine would rename itself Busycom after its product. Now, Intel needed the business, but creating that many custom chips was out of the question. Intel recently published a video with co-founder Gordon Moore in which Moore recalled, quote, We weren't big enough to tackle two chips, much less 13. This is where Martian Ted Hoff made a key contribution to the project. He took a look at what Busycom was asking for and determined that the 12 chips could probably be combined into just four, a RAM, a ROM, an I.O., and a logic chip with general purpose architecture. Busycom agreed. Intel put Les Fidaz in charge of managing the Busycom development project, but Fidaz was helping out with the 1103 DRAM. Intel still needed to hire someone to actually do the design work. Fidaz had also come over from Fairchild, and he'd recently received a call from a designer still there at Fairchild who was looking for a job at Intel. That was Federico Fagin. Fidaz hired Fagin for the Busycom project. Now, it's possible Intel got incredibly lucky. Fagin might have been among the very few people, perhaps the only person, with the right combination of knowledge and skills to build the 4004. Fagin makes that case anyway. While Fagin was still at Fairchild, he developed an important innovation. The common practice at the time for building transistors in an integrated circuit was to use metal gates. Now, a point of information here. 
The notion of a silicon gate had been proposed years earlier, but in his autobiography, Fagin says he did not know that at the time. So here's Fagin, working at Fairchild, puzzling out how to make a functional silicon gate transistor. His inspiration was to create a buried contact, scooping out a literal hole. Fagin calls it a tub, seemed like it might be impossible, but he figured out a process. To test out his idea, Fagin decided to take a standard part that was being made in the standard way, with metal gates, and revise it, this time using a silicon gate transistor. Fairchild had a multiplexer called the 3705. Fagin created a version called the 3708, only this time it had silicon gates. The performance of the 3708 was significantly superior using several metrics. Fairchild, for whatever reason, however, failed to patent the silicon gate and rarely used it. To underline what a mistake that was, eventually the silicon gate construction became the standard for transistors. It is still used today. So, when Fagin shows up at Intel in 1970, he knows silicon gate technology intimately. He had also already devised the bootstrap load with the silicon gate. The combination, a bootstrap load with a silicon gate, was widely believed impossible at the time, Fagin wrote in his autobiography. So, what was the big deal about combining a bootstrap load with the silicon gate? Without getting into too many technological details, the practical result is that Intel was able to drastically reduce the number of transistors required to make a dynamic MOS logic circuit compared to a static circuit. In Fagin's estimation, in 1971, it would have been impossible to make a functional microprocessor with any other method. It was a trick critical to the success of the 4004, and it also got incorporated into the 1103 DRAM that Intel was concurrently designing. Here's Fagin in an interview he recently did with ST Microelectronics earlier this year and posted to YouTube. Silicon gate was necessary. That change was not done by me. It was done by one of the application people at Intel, though the architecture of that computer is kind of standard in those days. You know, many people knew how to do it. The question was, how do you do it? How can you put 23, 2500 transistors? We didn't know yet. It was between 22, 2500, the estimate. Uh, in a single chip, right. they had to be small enough to be, you know, to make money and so on. And so, so that was my task. Intel had committed to delivering the four chips to Bizicom in an impractically short amount of time. Some of the designers, including Fujin and Masatoshi Shima, an engineer employed by Bizicom but assigned to the project, regularly put in 80-hour weeks. Some of the processes that ordinarily would have been done in sequence at the time had to be overlapped. Layout was begun before the design was finished. The worst delay in the schedule came when the first set of wafers were delivered, and not a single 4004 chip worked. The problem turned out to be that the production department had omitted an entire mask layer. On the other hand, ordinarily the customer would have conducted a lengthy process of qualifying the chips it was buying. That whole process was dramatically truncated because Bizicom had had an engineer on the design team and was so confident the four chips worked that it began buying them in volume immediately. Now, Bizicom had arranged for an exclusive contract for the part. Fagin, knowing that it was a general-purpose device, convinced Intel to buy the rights back. And once it did, Intel began to sell the 4004 chipset to other customers as well. The 4004 
had 2,300 transistors. Modern microprocessors have billions. The 4004 was manufactured in a 10 micron process. Today, most advanced chips have features that measure in nanometers. The 4004's frequency was 750 kilohertz. Modern chips operate in the gigahertz regime. Just because a company invents something, it doesn't mean it will ultimately prosper from it. Intel did not understand what it had in the microprocessor at first. What follows is a quote from Andy Grove. It appeared in Time magazine in 2003. Grove was looking back at the introduction of the 4004 and its companion parts on November 15, 1971. He wrote, They were electronic Lego blocks of sorts. Beyond that, they were chips like any others we were building in those days. If anything, simpler than the complex memory chips that occupied our attention. So it was with amazement that we manufacturing types greeted the trade paper ad that appeared on November 15th, announcing a new era of integrated electronics, it trumpeted. Frankly, I was horrified. What was this new era? What was so special? Looking back, the marketing folks were on to something. Digital electronics was growing rapidly. Customers began demanding improvements, leading to more and more complex versions of the building blocks. We called them microprocessors, and they became the soul of the personal computer. That was Andrew Grove in 2003 talking about the 4004. Fajin would stay on to design two more microprocessors for Intel, the 8008 in 1972 and the 8080 in 1974. The 8080 was an important precursor to the x86 family of microprocessors. But in 1974, as Grove recalled, Intel management was still far more interested in memory chips and was downright disdainful of microprocessors. Fajin left Intel in 1974 to found Zilog. Zilog made microprocessors that were compatible with Intel's, but significantly cheaper. Intel is still prospering with microprocessors, however. Many in the x86 family still. EE Times has published a reminiscence of the 4004 written by Tyrius Research Principal Analyst Kevin Crewell. Earlier in this podcast, you heard a snippet of YouTube interview that Federico Fagin did with ST Microelectronics. Earlier this year, Fagin was a guest on this podcast talking about his latest endeavor, his investigations into the nature of consciousness. We have links to all of those items on this podcast episode's webpage. Are you an engineer looking to impress friends, family, and co-workers with your innovative design ideas? Well, have we got an opportunity for you. EEWeb is running its first ever design competition. The challenge is to develop an innovative motor control system that can be built using Arduino. The contest is open to any and all, the entry is free, and it's easy to enter. Just submit your idea for a project on the EEWeb website at eeweb.com. It's really just that simple. Now, last week we told you you've got until November 19th to enter. We have extended the deadline to November 22nd. After that, our judges will pick the top five proposals. The five finalists will receive free Arduino Portenta H7 kits, along with a couple hundred dollars each to spend on parts, as well as licenses to Altium's development tools. 
Finalists will have three months to actually build their proposed systems. In March, we'll announce the top two winners. Again, sign up at eeweb.com. There's also a link here on this podcast episode webpage that goes directly to the contest rules. And that concludes this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. Next week is Thanksgiving. We are taking the week off. We will be back in two weeks. The Weekly Briefing is available through iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. But if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we've mentioned, along with other resources. You will also find our other podcasts. They are Power Up, hosted by Maurizio Paolo Emilio. That's about power electronics. Embedded Edge is about embedded technologies. The host is Nitin Dahad. We also have the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with Sally Ward-Foxton. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you in two weeks.